Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Okay, Boomer. Okay, gang. Now here's a sobering thought. There are more senior citizens living in this country than ever before, but funding for senior programs continues to drop. Everything for the seniors seems like it's went down in the last 10 years. I've been here over about 24 years, so I've seen a lot of change. That's Janet Melvin from the Wit and Wisdom Senior Center talking about what she has seen during her decades at work at the center. Now let's talk politics. What happens when people with different political leanings meet in the great outdoors? Bev Schofstall of Free Again Wildlife Rehabilitation says people put that all aside and, and we don't have any arguments on, on any of that because we're all here for one purpose and, and to enjoy the, the habitat that we have here. And Beverly will talk about a wilderness area in the Midwest. Next we hear from a former five-star general. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. And that former general of the Army was also a president. Bob Smith will tell you who he was on a special edition of Off-Ramp during the second part of this program. Then we'll examine an AARP report on fraud, a possible Alzheimer's treatment called comprehensive care, droughts and arsenic levels in drinking water, Medicare prescription drug transparency, and exercise. It might fight cold and the flu, exercise. The news is next. Boomer News, I'm Robert Rickman. This week, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, at CMS, has proposed steps to further drive down prescription drug costs in Medicaid and build on President Biden's executive order to lower prescription drug costs for Americans. CMS's latest notice of proposed rulemaking would shed light on the actual cost of drugs covered by Medicaid. Under this proposal, Medicaid would have an increased ability to hold drug manufacturers accountable for what Medicaid programs pay for drugs. And this rule would allow CMS an increased transparency of prescription drug costs. This rule will allow CMS to have more insight into what the most expensive drugs on the market today actually cost to manufacture and distribute. The proposed regulation would give CMS and states additional tools like a drug price verification survey, which would result in greater transparency into manufacturers' drug prices. Another proposed provision aims to enhance transparency into the costs of administering drug benefits in Medicaid managed care plans. Managed care plans cover more than 75% of Medicaid beneficiaries. Managed care plan pharmacy benefit managers often negotiate and administer the pharmacy benefit, though there has been a lack of transparency into the amount plans have paid to PMNs for administering the drug benefit and the amount pharmacies have been paid for the drugs. This proposal would help ensure that taxpayer dollars are actually going to pay for drugs and not increased profits. And the NPRM also focuses on the potential misclassification of drugs as brand name or generic. The proposed rule includes provisions to ensure states would receive the appropriate rebates to which they are entitled. Since states receive a higher percentage of rebate dollars for brand name drugs compared to genetics. With increased transparency, states would be able to determine if manufacturers appropriately classified their covered outpatient drugs, and if they did not, give CMS the ability to take action to correct the misclassification. Now let's go on to blatant fraud. 
Two-thirds of adults in the United States believe fraud has hit a crisis level, according to a new AARP Fraud Watch Network report. The report also highlights the methods criminals use to steal money, such as cryptocurrency, gift cards, and peer-to-peer payment apps. The findings suggest the need for Americans to share what they know about scams with their friends and family. And from victims of one type to victims of another. In California, Mexico, and Vietnam, researchers linked rising arsenic levels in groundwater to drought and the overpumping of aquifers. As the West grapples with a mega drought that has lasted more than two decades and states risk cutbacks in water from the shrinking Colorado River, the San Luis Valley offers clues to what the future may hold. Nationwide, about 40 million people rely on domestic wells, estimates Melissa Lombard, a research hydrologist for the U.S. Geological Survey. Nevada, Arizona, and Maine have the highest percentage of domestic well users, ranging from about a quarter to a fifth of well users, using water with elevated arsenic levels she found in a separate study. Lombard estimates that during drought, the number of people in the contiguous U.S. exposed to elevated arsenic from domestic wells may rise from 2.7 million to 4.1 million. Arsenic has been shown to affect health across the human span, beginning with sperm and eggs. Even a small exposure added up over the course of a person's life is enough to cause health problems. That's according to her. And speaking of a health problem, for the first time, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration has approved disease-modifying drugs that bring some hope for long-term clinical benefit for persons affected by mild cognitive impairment or early to mild dementia. Unfortunately, most persons living with AD and those with other causes of dementia will not be eligible to receive these new drugs. Nevertheless, they may benefit substantially from comprehensive dementia care. Now, what is that? Caregiver support, continuous monitoring and assessment, ongoing care plans, psychosocial intervention, self-management, medication management, treatment of related conditions, coordination of care, and advanced care planning. Growing evidence suggests that comprehensive dementia care is beneficial for quality of care, clinical outcomes for people living with dementia, uh, for example, reduced behavioral symptoms, and their caregivers, uh, that helps them too. They might feel stress, strain, and depression. And there are also cost savings, including low-income safety net health systems, the home setting, remotely by telephone, and dementia-specific co-management and primary care clinics. Many of these models have been fostered and evaluated through the U.S. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, showing benefit on some very important outcomes. Regular aerobic exercise, popularly known as cardio, is linked to a significantly lower risk of death from flu or pneumonia, even at weekly levels below those recommended. This from U.S. research published online in the British Journal of Sports Medicine. In today's AARP Minutes, how to prevent non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, plus how to honor fallen service members for Memorial Day. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease affects a quarter of adults in the U.S., but many people are unaware of the dangers. The condition occurs when extra fat is built up in the liver of non-heavy drinkers. It has the potential to cause liver failure or cancer. Regular exercise and maintaining a healthy weight can help reverse the fat buildup. Coffee can also reduce progression of the disease, researchers say. The Department of Veterans Affairs will host more than 130 Memorial Day ceremonies at cemeteries around the country to honor fallen service members. 
If you want to join in, many locations will need volunteers to place small American flags in front of veterans' headstones leading up to Memorial Day. They will also need help removing and storing the flags after. Some cemeteries will host wreath-laying ceremonies with speeches, music, a moment of silence, and the playing of taps. That's your AARP Minute. Well, I always thought coffee was good for you, and I've been drinking it my entire life. Actually, what happened when I was six or seven, I asked my mom to put a few drops of coffee in my milk, and by eight, I was drinking a full cup. Hey, where's a good place for a boomer to go for, say, a cup of coffee or an inexpensive meal? Senior discounts and a change to mix with a chance to mix with fellow boomers? The answer is a senior citizen center such as the Wit and Wisdom Center. Janet Melvin has been working there for more than 20 years. We have a program for our seniors. It's called Benefit Access. And when you fill out the application, you have to have your income for the year before. And it has to be presented when you come in to be able to get the discount. And once you've been approved by the state, you'll get a reduction in that sticker price. And the application is for two years. So you only do it every two years, but you do have to reapply. Once you've been accepted and you use it, it reduces from $151 down to $10. That's it's a pretty a good savings. deal. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. What other advantages can a senior take advantage of here? We also, in the usually around July, we have what's called farmer's markets. They're welcome to come in and sign up. You do, it is based on income, and they have to prove their income. They can use those at the farmer's markets just like cash but you get one time a year. You can do that too here. We help with the Medication D, enroll people in their Medication Ds to get help with the discount on the prescription drugs. We do the home delivered meal program, which uh, we have probably about 340 on it right now on our, our program. Uh, we also, I do referrals to Shawnee for homemaker service. If you need help in your home and it is, uh, it's kind of a based on income too, but anyone who wants to come here to eat congregate meals at noon is welcome and suggest a donation of $4 per meal. Not a requirement, only a suggested donation. Now, getting back to medication, I had a relatively expensive for me, $125 a month, and uh, a program cut it down to about 4 or $5. Yes, that's your Medication D programs. That's through Medicare. And we do apply people here. I cannot apply you like for supplement insurance. You have to be a licensed agent for that. But I can do Medicare Ds. And it starts, open enrollments in October and ends in December, I think December 12th. Starts October 15th through December 12th. You have to enroll then, unless there's special circumstances like you're just going on Medicare or you were working and you quit working or you lost your coverage for some reason then there's sometimes special enrollment periods for those people. Now you also mentioned um, the meals. You uh -huh. said something like 400 people you would drop meals off to? We're doing 340 right now yes all over Franklin County we deliver once. Now we're doing our meal programs change we now only do one hot meal per week and four frozen meals, and they deliver once a week. We're doing that. We have to cut expenses, and that's a way of doing it because we don't have the drivers going out five days anymore, you know, saves on the wear and tear of the vehicles, gas, things like that. So we had to make a compromise. Jackson County does that too. 
And I think uh, Celine's thinking about starting doing it too. It's going to help cut cost. Is what we have to look at. About four months ago, I was talking to Chrisley about um, the cost going up, but the money coming into these senior centers is it's going getting down. Less, getting less, yes. And our seniors, everyone knows, cost of living now is horrible. And a lot of our seniors just do not have the money to contribute. We do not require it. It's just donations. That's it. If they can't pay, they're still welcome to get the meals. What about government subsidies? Has that increased or decreased over the years? Uh, decreased. <laughs> Everything for the seniors seems like it's went down in the last 10 years. I've been here over about 24 years, so I've seen a lot of change, a lot of change. And it's not for the better for the seniors. If anyone gets cut a program, it's usually our senior programs. But the baby boomers are the largest senior population, are they not? Yes, they are. They sure are. But they're the ones going to suffer because our incomes are not getting higher, but everything else is. But aren't the baby boomers controlling the country now? Well, do you think they are? I don't know. Are they? Who controls our country anymore? It, there's a big question there. But if any program gets cut, it usually goes to the seniors first. It really does. Okay. Do you have anything else you'd like to say? Um, no, I just wish people would utilize the center more. You're welcome to come here anytime. We'd like for you to come in for meals. We serve at noon. Everyone is welcome. Everyone. And um, we'd like for you to be over 60. But if you want to come, the price for 60 and under is 650. And that's a requirement, but not if you're over 60. You know, it's only suggested donations. And our uh, congregate's growing. COVID really put a damper on people getting out. They got the habit of staying home. They don't want to get out anymore. But they enjoy it once they start back. And oh, we do have a dance here on Thursday nights too for the seniors. And we're offering a lot of activities and stuff now and games and things. And we're doing crafts on Wednesday. And we have some other programs starting up. Exercise program. Bingo size, I attended bingo one. Size, yeah, yeah, bingo size. Yeah, we have bingo size. But we're going to think about another program too. Something to do with muscles. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, we're thinking about doing that too. So we're going to have some changes. We're trying to add to all the time. And like I said, I want to welcome everyone. I don't care who you are. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, I don't, I don't know how to put it. If you feel like that this is a place just for poor people, it's not. It is something for everyone. They can enjoy it, you know. We like everyone to come in and get our congregate built up again. Janet Melvin of the Wit and Wisdom Senior Center in West Frankfort near the southern tip of Illinois. That's where the Ohio and Mississippi rivers come together. It's about 75 miles to the north. Well, you've heard some songs and you've wondered, you know, where did they come from, uh, who wrote them? We've got a person who was a disc jockey for decades. And you remember that uh, film, Nine to Five, with Dolly Parton? Well, there have been several songs written about it. And Roger R.M. Jed reports. Sheena Easton's first U.S. hit, 
Morning Train 9 to 5 is today's favorite. It was originally called 9 to 5, but the title was revised to avoid confusion with the Dolly Parton song, which was called 9 to 5. And that came from the movie of the same name, which had been released a few months earlier. Morning Train 9 to 5 was a chart topper on both the Hot 100 and Adult Contemporary charts. In 1980, the BBC did a documentary on Easton. It traced her career as a singer from the beginning. When the show aired, she had not yet had a hit, although Modern Girl had been released in the UK. In 1980, that song only went to number 56 in the U.S. After the show aired, 9 to 5 was released in the U.K. and it went to number 3 there. Modern Girl was re-released in the U.K. and it went to number 6 there. At this point, her record label, EMI, decided to try releasing her material in the States. Morning Train, 9 to 5, is one of two Sheena Easton songs on my favorites list. RRP. From 1981, here's Morning Train, 9 to 5, from Sheena Easton. Listen, folks, she's going to yodel a moment. Listen for the yodel. There you go, Sheena Eastwood, 1981, morning train, courtesy of the Jet. Hey, people outside of the state often think that Illinois is Chicago to the northeast and small towns and corn and soybean fields everywhere else, which is true for the most part except for the southern part of the state. A person by the name of Beb Schofstel moved to southern Illinois from Minnesota. Well, obviously, we have a wide variety of um, habitat differences. Uh, there are things that you would, we are on a borderline of things that you would only see in the deep south, and there are things that you only see in the north that you do see here. So consequently, the wildlife is just as varied as it follows the, the tree and plant uh, variations. Um, we also have a wide variety of differences with people and their attitudes about the wild areas and uh, it's not all about just hunting and it's not all about just birding it's uh, an extreme variation of how people enjoy the wildlife the wild areas around here that uh, is very mm, exciting and very um, well you know that people are enjoying it from many different aspects it's not just one aspect of their life now, from your experience, do they get along with each other when they meet? Not always, but for example, out here, we have a lot of people with different political views and different uh, attitudes about other areas of their life. But when it comes to taking care of these animals, uh, we can put that all aside and, and we don't have any arguments on, on any of that because we're all here for one purpose and, and to enjoy the, the habitat that we have here, uh, both the plant material habitat and the wildlife habitat. And we all are worried about where it's going and, and what people are doing to it, both uh, pollution-wise and just uh, 
urban sprawl wise and we're all very concerned about it and and all those other things are very peripheral when, once they get here and, and start working with the animals. Now I remember that was the way it was in Arizona and in the places I lived even at, in, in Carbondale but now politically you see these tribes you see these extreme sides but it from what you've just said it seems like when it comes to the habitat and the animals, people will set aside these differences and cooperate. Well, at least the people that come out here do. Now, I know that people still, when they're strictly fighting for an environmental issue, for example, you'll still get uh, a lot of diversity, a lot of uh, negative uh, diversity uh, on some of those issues. But obviously, when people come together and they already believe something, uh, they can set aside their political views to get that done. Do you have any final thoughts? Well, uh, it's just that it's something that we're going to fight for for the rest of our lives, one way or the other. Even when my husband and I are to the point where we can't keep up with uh, the job requirements, uh, there will still be ways that we can jump in and help. And I know that there's a lot of people out there that um, don't think they can do anything anymore, and that's not true. Even even a, a few things an hour a day uh, could make a difference around here. So uh, I would just encourage people to, to reach out beyond their, their narrow scope of their life and look around. There's plenty plenty that we can get in them. And whether it's with wildlife or the environment or, or another passion that they might have, that I would hope that they would just keep going because there's obviously a lot of work to get done in many different areas. And um, physicians, psychologists recommend that people keep active in their golden years. And there's been some studies that indicate that it might offset dementia. Oh, uh, well, I can't imagine why I wouldn't when especially dealing with what we deal with, I'm learning every day. The, a new animal comes in with, with an infliction or a, um, some deformity that we've never seen or, or there's a new disease that's uh, popped up in the environment that I have to learn about. And so it's keeping me on my toes, uh, having to keep learning. Uh, and I think that's just keeping me active. I don't want to just sit around and do crossword puzzles to do it. I want to I want to actually do something that's going to make a difference. Yeah, there are too many places, and I'm not going to tell you where they are. Would you like to stay and play bingo, Robert? No. Uh, well, you know, I guess once in a while... I might play a game of bingo if there's maybe a beer involved on a on a winter's night, but during this time of year, I don't have time for that. <laughs> well, me, I'm 70 years old, and, and the first time I went to senior centers was here in southern Illinois. And I associate bingo with old people, and I don't like it, but I'm old. Well, you know, if the prizes are good enough, I'll play bingo, but, but uh, I don't, you know... For, a, for an oddball night out, it might be fun, but that's not something I want to do on a regular basis. I've got other things to get done. <laughs> yeah, lots of other things. Beverly Schofstall operates Free Again Wildlife Rehabilitation Center near Heron and Carterville. Free Again is the largest and only species facility in southern Illinois where the Mississippi and Ohio rivers join together. Volunteers provide nursing and hospital care to distressed wildlife. And if you'd like to volunteer, call 618 988 1067. That's 618-988-1067. Or check out freeagainwildlife.org. 
Once again, that's freeagainwildlife.org. Hi, I'm Bob Smith. I'm Marcia Smith. The world is dark enough. So we like to keep it fun and light. Join us for 30 minutes of fact-filled fun every week. On the Off-Ramp Trivia Podcast. You'll hear fascinating facts about history, music, discovery, weird animals, and everything in between. Including little-known facts about well-known people. Each week. Right here on The The Off-Ramp. Find us wherever you get your podcasts or visit us online at theofframp.show. Are you an aspiring author looking to get your book published? Look no further than Tech Time Publishing Company. At Tech Time, we specialize in bringing the best books to readers everywhere. Our team of experienced editors and designers work closely with authors to bring their stories to life, ensuring every book is of the highest quality. But that's not all. Tech Time also offers a unique service to translate and narrate books and revenue sharing. This means that our talented team of translators and narrators will be compensated with a share of the book sales. So whether you're an author, translator, or narrator, Tech Time is the place to be. Join our community of book lovers and let us help you bring your stories to the world. Visit our website today to learn more. That's techtime.it. Tech Time. And if you're looking for a first-class Italian translator, check out Laura Squigna. It's spelled S-G-U-I-G-N-A. Laura Squigna, and you can find her on the Tech Time website under Translators. And Bob's going to have a special feature in a few minutes. Uh, We don't have time for coffee this morning. We do have something Sober to talk about, Alex Edward Paul Jr., who was born in 1941, passed on the evening of May 22nd. He is the husband of Janice Paul, who is the station manager of WDBX. Now, the family will hold a wake on Sunday, June 4th, 12 to 5, at the garden next to WDBX, and we're located at 224 North Washington Street in Carbondale, Illinois. A celebration of Alex's life will be held October 23rd, at uh, Little Indian Creek Farm. Sober news from OK Boomer. Who was this president? He was athletic, smart, attended one of the greatest military academies, masterminded and led the greatest military invasion in history, became president of his country by a landslide, sent troops into the South to desegregate schools, signed the first civil rights legislation since the Civil War, launched NASA on its mission to put man in space, and started America's largest public works project in history. Who was this president? We'll explore that today on The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith, a place to slow down, steer clear of crazy, and take a side road to sanity. So who was that president of the United States we mentioned? the first U.S. president to send troops into the South to desegregate schools, the first to sign civil rights legislation since the Civil War, the man who launched NASA on its mission to put man in space and started America's largest public works project in history. If you said John F. Kennedy, you were wrong. In fact, you'll be surprised by the answer. The man who did all those things was Dwight Eisenhower. And today, he's almost a forgotten man in American history. We'll explore his legacy today on The Off-Ramp. Two things suggested this topic for me. First, Marcia and I recently returned from a trip to Central Europe, and something very interesting struck me. 
Everywhere we went, tour guides spoke of the great history of their towns and cities, history spanning more than 2,000 years in most cases. One thing they had in common, all had been conquered and subjugated by the Nazis during the Second World War. And when the subject turned to World War II, there was a common event they all referenced, D-Day. The invasion of Europe by the Allies, the event that liberated Western civilization from Adolf Hitler. In every city we visited, Nuremberg, Vienna, Salzburg, Budapest, modern history was divided before and after D-Day. It was the defining event. Now, to most of us Americans in the 21st century, D-Day is something that happened a long, long time ago, something our fathers, grandfathers, or great-grandfathers did on distant shores. In Europe, D-Day happened there, on their soil, and it's still remembered. That surprised me, because D-Day was 75 years ago, long before many of our tour guides were even born. But to a person, they all knew its significance, because it affected their fathers and mothers, grandparents and great-grandparents. Before D-Day, there was fear, starvation, and Holocaust. After D-Day, there was freedom. The second thing that suggested today's topic was that Dwight D. Eisenhower not only led, but helped plan that D-Day. He died 50 years ago this spring, and as he approached death, word of his medical condition spread with lightning speed around the world. You can trust me on that, because as a teenager, I captured all of the recordings you're going to hear on today's show from radio and TV broadcasts. Former President Dwight D. Eisenhower will undergo surgery later tonight. That's to relieve what doctors call an acute intestinal obstruction. It's all obstruction which has not responded satisfactorily to non-surgical methods. Doctors say the general and the former first lady accepted the decision to operate with equanimity. Another medical bulletin will be issued after the surgery is completed. Mr. Eisenhower is 78. Direct from our newsroom in New York, in color, this is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Good evening. As the whole world must know by now, Dwight David Eisenhower, 78, 34th President of the United States and the Allied Commander in World War II, died today. CBS News correspondent Nelson Benton reports from Walter Reed Army Hospital in Washington. The last ray of hope for General Eisenhower's survival started to disappear when doctors at Walter Reed Army Hospital gave a pessimistic early morning bulletin on his condition. It was followed a couple of hours later by a still gloomier report. Then, shortly before 1 p.m. Eastern Time, the hospital notified reporters that it had an announcement to make. By that time, there was little doubt as to what its content would be. General of the Army, Dwight David Eisenhower, 34th President of the United States, died quietly at 12.25 this afternoon <clears throat> after a long and heroic struggle against overwhelming illness. That's one of my own personal recordings from my teenage years. Whenever some event of great magnitude occurred, one of the things I like to do is capture how, right now, the world was talking about it. So I captured a lot of talk surrounding the death of Dwight Eisenhower on March 28, 1969. Recently, listening to those recordings, I was touched by how the nation mourned this man, a former president. We tend to forget today that Dwight Eisenhower was an incredibly popular person when he was alive. History often overlooks that when measuring the greatness of leaders, but 
people in a leader's time don't overlook that. Today, people tend to think of the 50s as a time of quiet prosperity. Jobs were plentiful. Crises were few. The world was at peace. Not much happened. That's not true, but even if it were, I'd call that success. Two presidential terms without chaos or scandal? I'd vote for that in a minute, wouldn't you? Listening to these recordings today, a half-century later, I'm struck by how the media spoke of Eisenhower in kind, almost reverential tones. It helped that many of the men and women in broadcasting in 1969 were reporters in World War II. They first met Eisenhower in the flesh during the war, when he was a general, and it had a lasting effect on them. Here's Eric Severide of CBS, the Dean of Network Commentators, talking with Walter Cronkite. I do remember, because he was a memorable man, and you always somehow remember the first moments when you meet such a person, even if he's not really well known then. And with me, it was the, the Army maneuvers in the fall of 1941 before Pearl Harbor. We were first down in Louisiana, and it was pretty hot and dusty, and uh, one day a colleague of mine from a news magazine, I think I was bunking with, said, you really ought to go up to Pike to headquarters and talk to a man named Colonel Eisenhower. He, said, he makes more sense about this than anybody this man had found. A month or so later in North Carolina, we had the second stage of the maneuvers, and I remember uh, meeting him. He'd been briefing us, I think, walking out of a tent or barracks. Uh, and you never forgot that face. The, uh, there was a naturalness about the man. I remember his springy stride. He was maybe 50 then, but he was terribly young in, in, in body and spirit, expression. And I remember asking him as we walked along, um, why don't we train these tanks out in the western desert or somewhere? Because uh, what good are they going to do in this kind of country? The fighting then was in North Africa, you know, and we were pretty sure to go there. And he seemed delighted with this question. I suppose because he already had the answer, and he said, that's exactly what we're doing uh, at such and such a date. They'd already laid on the plans to learn tank strategy somewhere out in the American desert. And then, of course, it was North Africa, and I must say uh, what the first English gentleman we heard from the street saying about his coordinating capacity was the thing. He, it was that quality he had that made other men want to please him, even a Churchill, that had held things together. I think that was his great role in the war. Yes, you know, this is the, this is the use of charisma in the administrative area, really. And, and uh, I remember hearing of Eisenhower, well, first in those maneuvers, which I was writing for the United Press, but I never met him there. Uh, and I didn't meet him, indeed, until London, until after uh, the North African operation. I was down there, but, but gone, never met him there, and went back to London. But I started hearing of him, of course, in North Africa. And right away, it was this devotion that you found among the men who had been working around him. And, and uh, there was a team spirit, really a, a, a Rockne-esque sort of thing, win it for Ike kind of idea on all well, sides. The, in the campaign of 52, that simple slogan, I like Ike, no, you know, just likability in a president, we would, we would always underrate in our history books or our political science textbooks. But whoever devised that knew instinctively what it is that would win for this man. And there never was a credibility gap, really, for the people at large in this country and that president while he was president. That likability business, that's what led to the trust, so that that gap never opened. Now, that, that's part of the thing that holds the country together, I think. However brilliant a political scientist he may have 
not being, and he wasn't a brilliant politician. He was a great politician by not being a politician. That extraordinary quality that comes along very rarely in public life, I think had a lot to do with the relative calm and order of that period. The great Walter Cronkite felt the same way, calling Eisenhower an honest man in a dishonest world. Part of his effect, I think, on all of us, uh, newsmen, and it uh, must have been on the other generals, uh, was this fact that, that he was different. That somehow he towered above the crowd with this uh, simplicity of the man, really. Uh, and, and this translated into honesty, truth, integrity. Uh, you, you know yourself from those Ministry of Information briefings wherever we were in the field or whatnot in England and France afterwards that that uh, the men around Eisenhower who were really doing the briefing, dealing with the press, tough, hard, uh, not very cooperative. And they bring him in for an occasion every once in a while and suddenly the things they'd been telling you uh, and you didn't believe, you certainly believed it when it came from Ike. There was that quality. You know, when he was president and he had news conferences every week or more often, um, and you'd read it, if you read the text of what he said in the press, I can remember one former statesman of some consequence saying, this ought not be published. Syntax often didn't scan, and sometimes you couldn't figure out what he meant from a given paragraph, when it was published verbatim. And yet, if you sat in that meeting, you knew what he meant, just by the facial expressions and, and something in him. But it didn't translate. When he spoke ad lib at... Uh, with a, on a definite subject that he thought about. It was very different than when he tried to give a prepared speech or read a speech. He wasn't very good at that. But there was a kind of a, an eloquence where you, you know it more than I, Walter, the, the scene with you and the, the general in that cemetery in, in France. Now, he said, just speaking ad hoc, he said exactly the right thing in the right words. Yes, he, and this was part of the quality. He was a man who spoke from his heart, reacted with his heart, and... Uh, it may have been confusing to some who are used to uh, more calculated moves on the part of politicians and leaders, but he had this other quality. Never confused ordinary people. You're listening to The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. We'll be back in just a moment. This is WDBX Carbondale. We return now to The Off-Ramp with Bob Smith. Eisenhower was by most accounts a mild-mannered, affable man. He could be prone to great anger if things didn't go well. He masterfully managed the egos of the greatest generals of England, France, Russia, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. He carried off the largest invasion in the history of warfare, and he won the war. But he never seemed to preen or pump himself up. And he knew the significant difference between D-Day and all the other great invasions in military history. It was not about gaining territory. These men came here, British and our other allies, Americans, to storm these beaches for one purpose only, not to gain anything for ourselves, not to fulfill any ambitions that America had for conquest, but just to preserve freedom, systems of self-government. Many thousands have uh, died for ideals such as these. And here again, in the 20th century, for the second time, Americans had to come across the ocean to defend those same values. They were cut off in their prime. So every time I come back to um, these beaches, 
or when he, any day when I think about that day, I say once more, we must find some way to work to peace, to gain an eternal peace for this world. D-Day was absolutely huge. 5,000 ships, 13,000 planes, 160,000 soldiers, sailors, and airmen. And that was just the first day. The Allies also dug pipelines under the English Channel, so the trucks, tanks, jeeps, and other landing craft would have oil and gas. And D-Day was more than June 6. Operation Overlord lasted from June to August 1944. In the first 27 days alone, 1.2 million men crossed the English Channel from Great Britain, pushing east to defeat Nazi Germany. That's how big the operation was. And Eisenhower not only headed up planning for it, he led it as well. Even his voice was a weapon of leadership, projecting confidence in a special radio announcement broadcast in the pre-dawn darkness to the thousands of troops waiting in ships and aircraft. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. What did you do during all those hours of waiting? That's the most terrible time for the senior commander. He's done all that he can do, all the planning, and matter of fact, there's very little more that any commander above division command can do anything after once you get started. So um, the first thing I did, I went over and uh, fortified myself with a lot of coffee and uh, breakfast. Then I began to go up and down the wharves. Some of the uh, ships were still starting out. I saw people that had sent them off and so on. And then finally along about uh, six in the evening, I went over to a field from which the uh, Airborne, the American Airborne, the 101st Division, and um, they were getting ready and all camouflaged and their faces blackened and all this. And then they saw me and of course they'd recognize me and they said, now quit worrying, gentlemen, we'll take care of this thing for you. And that kind of, of uh, thing was a good feeling. One of the most famous pictures of D-Day was of you talking to the paratroopers oh, in their camouflage. Oh, and one of the versions of that visit, uh, I think, said that as you turned away, this reporter saw a tear in your eye. Well, I don't know about that. It, it could have been possible because, look, here's the kind of uh, an operation you start. You know there are going to be losses along the line. It's a, um, if a man didn't show a bit of emotion, it would uh, show that he... Uh, 
probably was a little bit inhuman. And uh, goodness knows, those fellows meant a lot to me. For many people, a little-known fact of World War II is that Eisenhower personally visited as many of the liberated Nazi concentration camps as he could. So, in his words, he could testify firsthand about what he saw. Quote, in case there ever grew up at home a belief or the assumption that the stories of Nazi brutality were just propaganda. Unquote. Eisenhower ordered the filming and photographing of camps as they were liberated. The U.S. Army Signal Corps recorded approximately 80,000 feet of film, along with still photographs. And famous film director George Stevens, then a colonel in the service, assembled 6,000 feet of that footage, creating a one-hour documentary called Nazi concentration camp. Prosecutors used that gruesome film at Nuremberg to prove Nazi leaders on trial perpetuated crimes against humanity. To this day, Jewish groups credit Eisenhower with ensuring that the horrors of the Nazi Holocaust are well known. Like George Washington leaving the army after he won the revolution, Dwight Eisenhower left the military to return to civilian life. For a time, he was president of Columbia University. Next, the leaders of the nine allied nations of World War II asked him to be the first leader of NATO, the North American Treaty Organization. Then he answered the call to become President of the United States. If presidents were judged by how popular they were during their tenure in office, Eisenhower would be at the top. He won the presidency two times, both in landslide elections, 1952 and 1957. But because he wasn't as charismatic as his successor, John F. Kennedy, he wasn't a media darling. The press didn't fall in love with him. Yet his accomplishments dwarf Kennedy's and many others who followed. Think how poorly things could have been handled. Fifty million men have to come back to the United States and find jobs. Harry Truman and Dwight Eisenhower's administrations skillfully got millions out of uniform and back into the workforce. Unemployment was 2% or less during most of Eisenhower's years in office. Eisenhower negotiated an end to the Korean War, stopping that conflict after just three years. When the Russians sent Sputnik into space and people went crazy, rather than resorting to some kind of military action, Eisenhower launched NASA, a civilian space administration, and got us started on our way to the moon. Eisenhower formed the Department of Health and Human Services and named a woman to the post, the second woman in U.S. cabinet history. He also appointed several of America's greatest Supreme Court justices, William Brennan and Earl Warren. He launched DARPA, the Department of Defense's Advanced Research Projects Agency, which eventually gave birth to the Internet. Eisenhower's State Department came up with a communist containment strategy that continued for the next 40 years and eventually led to the bankruptcy and dismantling of the Soviet Union. He supported and signed the Civil Rights Bill of 1957, the first piece of civil rights legislation since the Civil War, and he sent troops into the South to protect the rights of African Americans, the first time since Reconstruction. He also ordered the complete desegregation of the armed forces. There must be no second-class citizens in this country, he said. Though he leaned conservative, Eisenhower continued most of FDR's New Deal and Fair Deal programs. He even expanded Social Security to 10 million additional Americans by providing unemployment and disability benefits, something today called supplemental security income. 
And although a man of war, he focused on maintaining peace. Before the presidency, he was the first man to head up NATO. And during the presidency, he launched an Atoms for Peace program, loaning American uranium to have-not nations for peaceful purposes. Finally, Dwight Eisenhower launched the most massive public works project the country has ever undertaken, a project I can guarantee you've benefited from, no matter who you are or where you live in this nation, the interstate highway system. Eisenhower got the idea for it when he was a young army officer in the early 1900s and had to cross the country, plagued by a miserable hodgepodge of dirt, gravel, and poorly paved roads. He foresaw an interconnected highway system, something that could be used in both peace and war. And when he became president, he made sure it happened. That's a pretty significant record, despite the fact he isn't on the tip of the tongue when most people think of great presidents. But Dwight Eisenhower's imprint is still on the office of president to this day. It was Eisenhower's idea to use helicopters to get the president to and from the White House. He recommended that new aerospace technology to the Secret Service. And he was the very first president to ride in a helicopter. Eisenhower gave the first televised press conference by a president. He was the first to launch rockets into space from Cape Kennedy and put weather satellites into orbit. And it was Eisenhower who gave the name to the presidential retreat in Maryland where presidents still go to recharge, to meet foreign leaders, or negotiate peace treaties. Camp David. In true everyman fashion, Dwight Eisenhower named it for his little grandson, David Eisenhower. And when he retired, like the great George Washington, one of the only other generals to become a president, it was to a farm a farm Eisenhower bought in Pennsylvania. Before he left office in early 1961, he gave a farewell address. Today, most Americans know that in that address, he warned of the dangers of the military-industrial complex. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. But it may surprise many of us in the 21st century, in the era of Google, Facebook, Microsoft, and the National Security Agency, that Eisenhower also warned of the dangers in the rise of high technology. Akin to and largely responsible for the sweeping changes in our industrial military posture has been the technological revolution during recent decades. Today, the solitary inventor, tinkering in his shop, has been overshadowed by task forces of scientists in laboratories and testing fields. For every old blackboard, there are now hundreds of new electronic computers. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. We must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy 
could itself become the captive of a scientific, technological elite. Finally, Eisenhower touched on another subject of 21st century concern, our use of the environment. As we peer into society's future, we must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. We cannot mortgage the material assets of our grandchildren without risking the loss also of their political and spiritual heritage. So in fact, Eisenhower was far more far-sighted than many Americans are prone to give him credit for. He died after a long illness on March 28, 1969. You may have known very little of what I just told you about Dwight Eisenhower, but 50 years ago when he died, Americans did, and they mourned what they knew had been a great leader. Perhaps no one could do a better eulogy for Dwight Eisenhower than the late great Walter Cronkite. And in 1969, at the end of a three-hour TV special on the former general and former president, he gave this one. It was the contradiction of Dwight Eisenhower that made him great. He held the most complex jobs his times could provide, and yet he was an almost incredibly simple man. Simple in the best sense of the word. Not given to duplicity, undesigning, straightforward, devoid of ostentation, unaffected, natural. Those qualities are rare. They are rarer still among those in positions of power who have had to scheme and fight to get there. But Eisenhower came to leadership in war and in peace almost despite himself, and was never forced to divest himself of his simple qualities. He probably could not if he had tried. It was those qualities, so evident, which inspired men to trust him, and which permitted a few to use him. The former, under his command, achieved a great military victory. The latter, under his lash, felt the sting of monumental rage. In the love a nation held for Eisenhower might be found the hankerings for a simpler time, a return to virtues lost in the maelstrom of modern life. And this may be the greatest lesson of his historic life that theories and ideologies and cosmic schemes and grandiose plans are no match for an honest man. I hope you enjoyed this little history lesson and our look back at a man many seem to have lost track of, Dwight Eisenhower, a man who died 50 years ago this spring. This is Bob Smith. I hope you'll join us next time when we return with more on The Off-Ramp. Thank you very much, Bob. That was a very good program. And that wraps up OK Boomer. Thanks to uh, Bev Schofstall, Janet Melvin, Bob and Marcia Smith, Roger Ramjet. Join me next time. And remember, we all have choices. I'm Robert Rickman.